we were like the senior group, and it was hard to get used to that so many of these uh, mega church pastors were in their 30s and 40s, and and so as they were speaking, it was wonderful. Uh, and, and there were several ladies who spoke. And Louise and I had this conversation. Is it okay? Okay. I was going to ask permission, but now I'll ask forgiveness. Uh, so we are, uh, uh, I made this observation because several of the women who spoke to us were wearing the, the current fashion leggings with a, a, a skirt over it. By leggings, I used to call them tights, okay? But they're leggings. And, and then um, they wore a skirt that was probably down to the knee, so it was all very proper. But then a couple of them also wore a scarf over over that. Well, we're in Dallas, Texas. It's 90, you know, it's well above 80 degrees. So I make this comment, and Louise is sharp, okay? She's really sharp. So I say, did you notice that what the Christian women are wearing this day and in and, and terms of the younger generation, and, and I have to get used to this. She said, did you check out the men? I went, no. <laughs> what? She goes, don't you realize the men are all walking with their tails out, wearing jeans, tennis shoes, some of them even wearing sandals? And you know that the only one, the only man speaking to us who wore a tie, wore it way down here with his top button unbuttoned? No. I didn't realize that. Well, as we continue to talk, we, we continue to say, man, this generation decides to dress differently. Now, I want you to know, if my parents were taking me out to supper at a nice restaurant and I was dressed like this, they'd look at me and say, Jim, we're not going till you're dressed. What do you mean dressed? Tuck that shirt in, boy. And then we would go out. So times change, don't they? And, and we have to get used to this. Does the way I dress, because last week, remember, I dressed in a full suit. I wish I had a, still a three-piece suit, but to look more professional and more ministerial and holy, I wore, uh, I wore my black suit. In the business, we call it the hatching, matching, and dispatching suit. Um, and I said, does this make me look more professional? And two people said, no. Oh, sorry. Well, now I have to say, in this garb, Don't I look like I'm 35 again? (laughs) You weren't to laugh at that point. What does it say? What it says is how we look on the outside may have no effect on who we really are. This is the issue of authenticity. And by authenticity, it says, no matter what sort of makeup I put on, and I don't put on as much as I used to, no no matter how I dress, no matter whether I'm trying to go super casual, no matter whether you come here in shorts and sandals next Sunday, or or, or you don't, or you come all dressed up and you decide to wear ties, that, that says something about how you look, but it says very little about who you are. And I want to say this, no matter how I look, After hearing me for a few weeks, you're going to know who I am as your pastor. And there's no way that I can cover that up or change your thoughts on that by the way that I dress. And you're the same way. You see, authenticity eventually comes out. And we have to make this decision that what we say about ourselves is also who we must be and what we must do. For example, last week we introduced our mission statement. Our mission statement is hoping, I hope, is something that we can begin to talk about and memorize. And excuse me, I still had to write it down as I get used to it. 
But I was working on it with several other people to come up with something that speaks to us that's not that different from what we had before, but something that also uh, makes it easier for those not, in, not with us to read it on our website, to read it as I tweet them. I'm going to learn that. And, and, and so that they can, they can identify more easily. Our mission statement is honoring God as we build a family, serve the community, and share Jesus' love in the world. Very simple. Honoring God. Honoring means it's a little easier for people to, to pick up and identify with than when we say glorifying God. And so we, we thought that was a good way to do it. But friends, if we say we're honoring God with our lips but aren't doing it in our lives, they will come and they'll see us and they'll know that's not us and they'll be out of here as soon as you can, uh, before you can take two breaths. So we've got to say it, and as, believe me, as we surveyed people and talked to people, uh, and as, both in the church and outside of the church, they were saying things like this as they came to be a part of us. Well, we didn't just survey people, but we also surveyed Scripture. And of course, whenever you're talking about people in Scripture, what comes on top, Bergen Park Church? Scripture. That they had to be aligned together. And so we were talking about what does God value and what does he value first? Well, he loves authenticity and he loves to be honored. So uh, that really fit in. And because we honor God, we say that his values, the things on his heart, are also going to be on our heart. And so as we were thinking, what is it in Scripture and what is it that people say and what was it about our, our the theme of our worship service this morning that we want to communicate and we pray we are communicating with our world? What is it? What's, what goes to the top? Well, to me, the, the, the corest of core values is what makes us different from all the other faiths around the world. They all have a founder, but Jesus came full of grace and truth. And as you talk to other people of other faiths, the word grace does not come up very often. In fact, as I've studied them, it, none of them are really grace-based. Uh, grace and so we want to be emphasizing that as people know, and we, we want to say it in a way in which people will pick it up and identify with it and be able to repeat it to one another. So we champion who God is and what God does for us, and, and the core value word there revolves around grace, so we want to say it in, in a very uh, easy-to-remember way. If I use the word grace on you, uh, you would probably pick it up. If you use the word grace around the world, they'll think, oh, it's just a little thing. Or, or more than that, what's grace like? Oh, you know, grace is like winning the lottery. No, that's luck. Grace is like winning the lottery without buying a ticket. That's God, okay? And I hope you see the difference. So what grace means, we want to emphasize. And what grace means, we don't want to devalue, but we want to make sure we are living. And so we want to state it for newcomers, but friends, we also have to live it. So I want to give you this morning a prime example in Scripture that we can follow, emulate, study, and learn what grace looks like. There is no one in Scripture who has experienced grace more completely than a man named Saul, who we also call Paul. He is that prime example. He starts being an enemy of Jesus and all of his followers, and then God gives him a change of heart. 
If you saw that recent television series, The Bible, on the History Channel, uh, Saul is first seen arguing with Stephen. That happens in about Acts chapter 6, 7, and 8, okay, where you see Stephen. And Stephen is young. He's a relatively new believer. He, he is Jewish, but, but he comes from a Greek background. And, and Stephen is arguing with a crowd about the deity of Jesus of Nazareth. And, and, and Saul, who is well-educated, a great leader, uh, a, a wonderful speaker, but looks sort of wimpy if you if you look at him. Uh, his mind even holds his ground. In fact, Stephen is winning the crowd. And Saul does something that we all you got to remember this. Saul says, "I think what he was thinking is I'm losing this argument, not because he's saying it better than me." Because he's saying something they all want about Jesus of Nazareth. So Saul looks on the ground and he picks up a stone. He gives it to a, a person in the mob, tells him to hold it and cherish it. And then he says, here, I'll take your coat. You take my stone, I'll take your coat. Now, what are you going to do next? Well, of course, they stone Stephen. Because uh, Paul had been able to 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 work on this mob uh, to allow them to say, yeah, he, he's, he's changing everything. We don't want that. And so there he is. He can honestly say, I'm innocent, though he's certainly guilty of conspiracy, uh, as Stephen is stoned. And so this high-achieving man decides that once Stephen is out of the way, there's a persecution that goes through all of Jerusalem. And, and then uh, he realizes that the Christians have been scattered uh, to places like Damascus. And so Paul says, I'm going to tie up all the loose ends together. I'm just not going to make sure that Stephen is killed. And I'm just not going to make sure that the remnants of Christianity are no longer seen uh, in Jerusalem. What I am going to do is I'm going to eliminate this Christian faith around the world. Now, you've got to love the man's commitment. You also got to love the fact he failed. <laughs> All right. And here's where we pick up. Uh, this is the great moment where you see God will not let go of Saul, whom we call Paul. I'm in Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Again, with all of his passion, with all of his education, with, with all his determination, he goes after the Christians and it says this. Meanwhile, Acts chapter 9, verse 1, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest, the head of the Jews, Jewish religion, and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, Christ followers, whether men or women, he would take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, God steps in. Now, as he steps in, I just want you to know, yeah, you know about Saul's conversion. But the main thing that Saul discovers is that as smart as he is, as empowered as he is, uh, he is no match for the resurrected Jesus of Nazareth. And here is grace experience. Here is the prime example. Because at that moment, we read in verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. 
I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Well, it is on this road with this mission of, of Saul that he has to destroy the Christian faith that God defeats Saul. Saul comes with letters of authority. Jesus comes to Saul with supernatural power. Saul brings knife a knife to a gunfight, as they say, okay? He is outwitted. He is outpowered. He doesn't have a chance. Well, then, as he asks, who are you, Lord? Because he has no idea. All he heard is, why are you persecuting me? He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. What does he realize here? The person whose faith in him, whom he is trying to eliminate, Jesus of Nazareth, is alive. The accounts of him that he has risen from the dead are true. And uh, now, with a blinding light, he, he has he hears a voice that you know, apparently his companions heard the sound, but they didn't understand the voice. They couldn't hear the words. And so the resurrected Jesus says, you are persecuting me, not just Christians. Now, as Jesus speaks to him, Saul knows Jesus is alive. He knows that at this point that Jesus is God. And he also knows that Jesus has poured and, and, and focused his attention and his power right on Saul. So, he gives in. He goes to Damascus blind. He waits for further instructions. And when Saul is in that city of Damascus, a fearful and reluctant follower of Jesus goes to Saul, Saul, and he restores his sight, and he tells him to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and, and friends, I just want you to know, and if you haven't experienced this, I, I highly recommend it, you cannot be filled with the Spirit and filled with anger at the same time. It's one or the other. It's one or the other. It cannot happen. If the fruit of the Spirit dwelling in you is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and all those other things, if, if that is true, then anger goes away. And so without anger, poor Saul is just confused. He's one sorryful little puppy. And, um, and so it is at that point where I know it doesn't sound like grace so much as by but power, but let's go on to talk about what grace looks like. How, how do we examine grace? Because that is the term we want to be using for Bergen Park Church. That is the way in which we were saved by grace through faith. Uh, that is the way that everybody comes to Jesus. Well, when you examine it, I've I got to say this. There's, um, there's two terms in Scripture that you will probably be scratching your head until you get to heaven. And wondering, how do I explain this to others? The first is what we call election. God's sovereign choice of some people to have a specific purpose for him. That's election. That means uh, that because he knows you and foreknew what your life would be like, he specifically chooses you for some great purpose. So God has chosen Saul to be his emissary, rather than convict him of murder one, which he deserves. So the second term that comes up now is grace. And that means God's favor, God's love, God's forgiveness shown to you, but it's unmerited. In other words, you haven't earned it. You don't deserve it. God just dumped it upon you. And we understand God's grace is available for all. 
for everybody. But not everybody wants to receive it. So God shows his people his love in spite of what a person does. What he did is he looks at Saul and he says, Saul, what you did was terrible. You know, Stephen should be alive. The Jews should have been allowed to stay in Jerusalem. You shouldn't have done that. I think all of us have a few of those things, right? I mean, we just don't slap our hands, but we realize, oh, man, was that a... I can't believe I did that. Uh, Grace for him means that God was going to show him his love and his unmerited favor on Saul in spite of what he did. In spite of it. Let's examine grace a little bit more because in in John, when he speaks about Jesus coming to earth and, and God in the flesh, he says this, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is filled with grace and truth, and Jesus demonstrates God's unmerited love in the way that we see him in the Gospels. In other words, if you want to know what grace looks like, look at Jesus. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Look at those. And those will tell you what grace is like in the flesh. Then we go again, and because Saul wrote to the, um, uh, to the Corinthians, and he says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and these were people that did not have the Gospels yet. But he says there's this shining example to you young Christians of what grace looks like. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. So that you through his poverty might become rich. And this is not talking about money so much, even though the context is about a collection for the poor. This is about uh, Jesus laying aside the glory that was rightfully his. He, he took on like a spiritual poverty. So that we could take on... God's forgiveness, Jesus' righteousness. And we could know what it means to be accepted by God because God sees no sin in us anymore. Uh, we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see it as he went to the cross. And then in Romans, Paul speaks again, or Saul, and uh, as he speaks to these young Christians in Rome, he tells them that everyone, every generation, for all eternity has sinned and fallen short of God's standards. Now, I want you to know this. For me, I know I'm speaking to a far superior crowd. But for me, I don't need God's standards. I can't even meet my own. And so when you put God's standards in there, which are his righteousness and perfection, I'm toast. But I also understand that I have received God's grace. For all have sinned, he said, uh, and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. By his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. We deserve God's punishment just like Saul deserves God's punishment. You might say, well, yeah, but mine wasn't murder one. Oh, well, read the Sermon on the Mount and you'll say, well, close. At least my heart was. Um, We deserve God's punishment. But when we accept Christ, we accept his grace. And God brings us back to him. Grace for us costs us little. Just one basic thing. 
Grace for us cost our pride. The pride that says, I'm better than the people I know, and I'm better than most I've ever met. you got to give that up. You've got to be able to say, I'm still not good enough. And it is by us saying, I'm not good enough. I do not deserve to be in a relationship with God. I do not deserve to have my sins forgiven. I do not deserve to have the gift of eternal life. When we're able to say that, then we understand that the only way that we get through is through grace. I'm not good enough. And so when we place our trust in Jesus, we, you know, we first accept the grace of Christ. And so that is grace examined, sort of explained. And now we want to display it. Now, Saul is one of those. He's a walking, breathing act of God's grace. You know, he describes himself at one time in, in 1 Corinthians as one who was untimely born, who came into the kingdom of God. The, the, the real word is the one that's still used for, uh, in Greek for the word, I was aborted. I, I did not belong here. And um, he came later than the rest. He was more resistant than the rest. He was less qualified than the rest because he persecuted God's people. And... Uh, when he should have been building up God's people. But he is aware that I have received true grace. True grace will always make us aware of one's unworthiness before God. True grace causes a Christian to display true humility about oneself. And so Saul, Paul would say in that same chapter, for by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. I work harder than all of them, but he says, it's not my effort. I work harder, not I, but the grace of God that is in me. True grace from God makes one willing to listen to what God wants. So God wants Saul. And he wants Saul to be the one to speak to the Gentiles. He knows Saul is... The best one who understands Gentile culture. Nobody, none of the other disciples and apostles know that culture. He wants Saul to do extensive traveling. Saul's single. He can pull that off. He wants Saul to endure hardship. All the disciples would do that. He wants Saul to be his apostle. And Saul understands because of that great grace event there on the road to Damascus that by God's grace, that's the only reason why he should be involved. Saul is a walking example, breathing example of grace. And so am I. Maybe not to the same extent, but I'm a walking testimony of God's grace. And we all are. Let me tell you about my friend Len. I guess I shouldn't call him a friend. He was actually a a persecutor. (laughs) I became a Christian in 1965. And I was just beginning my senior year, and in my sophomore year, because my name began began with D and his name began with late C's, we always were sitting together. In my sophomore year, we, we were in the same history class together. And then in my senior year, Len and I found ourselves in the same civics class together. Well, you know, we got reintroduced at the beginning, and I sort of blurted out, you know, 
Lynn, uh, something happened to me this summer. I became a Christian. Oh, boy, was that a stupid thing to tell him. He starts teasing me. He starts telling everybody else in the class. He starts saying, oh, Jesus is your crutch. I don't need a crutch. Now, you got to know Lynn was smart. Lynn was popular. Um, Lynn was boisterous. Lynn was crafty. Uh, Lynn had it all together. Um, and, and so uh, he says, you need a crutch, but I'm going to make it on my own. Lynn goes to college. I, I want to say this. Um, Len had never played football until he got to college. And in four years of college, he got so good that he got drafted in the NFL as a cornerback. And when I heard that, you know, several years later, I said, I don't believe that. But it was true. But there's something else that I didn't know. Now, fast forward from my senior year in high school to 40 years, uh, our 40th high school reunion. That's quite a ways. I realize that and a lot happens in that 40 years. But uh, I see Len. Uh, he doesn't recognize me. I wonder why. But I recognize him. And so uh, we sit down and I say, Len, uh, you used to tease me a lot in our senior year. He goes, oh, Jim, I'm so sorry. You know, I, I, I guess what time has taught me is that uh, uh, I have nothing over everyone, anyone. And I go, okay, there's a story behind that. And during that 40th reunion, we talked for about an hour. And he said, what I've really come to do is not make amends with you, Jim, because <laughs> I'd forgotten all about you. But I had two friends in high school that aren't Christians. And I looked at him and I said, you're a Christian? I'd heard rumors. For real, you're a Christian. He goes, yeah, after the NFL, I, I'd also gotten a finance degree. I came back to Southern California and got involved in a develop company, a, de- a land development company. And uh, it turns out that they were frauds. But because I was the CFO, sort of, uh, and they were in another country and never coming back, they, you know, they went after me. And I go, oh, gee, so you're a felon. He goes, not quite. He says, um, in my neighborhood, there was a Christian cop that everybody knew was a Christian. So I went to him because I know, I, you know he might have some very practical legal advice for me on how to stay out of, how to stay out of jail. And um, his Christian cop friend says, I don't know if I can keep you out of jail, but Len, it's time for you to stay out of hell. He's a cop. Speaks straightforward. And Len realized, I don't know how to stay out of jail or out of hell. (laughs) So he sits and he listens. He becomes a Christian. And if you knew Len, within five years, he's in the ministry. (laughs) He's serving in a mega church. Uh, he, he deals with young singles, and because of his background, he, he does financial training and some legal training because he learned a lot about law. And uh, he never had a record. Well, so he apologizes again, and now he says, this is what I do now. I find Christians who have a lot of money, and I put them together with Christian works that need a lot of money, and I bring this marriage about. And I said, that's right up your alley. You must, you must love doing that. And he goes, I really do. And I can still vote. I'm not a felon. Now, then he says, you talk about grace. 
I am a living, breathing example of God's grace. I don't have a story that dramatic. I like my story, but it's not nearly as good as his. But I can say this. If you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, it's not because you are so wonderful. God has saved you through the merits of his son, Jesus, and he has poured his grace over you. And is there anything better that we can talk about as Bergen Park Church than grace? Than grace. What's going to happen? You know, as the new facility is built, I just want you to know that's like my clothing. You know, as we built a new facility, it's not a tuxedo, nor is it shabby like this. As we built the new facility, uh, you might say it's... Uh, Blue blazer and khaki style, okay? Though none of us will probably be wearing that. And yet, if they just come for the building, there's no reason why they should stay. Instead, what we want them to leave with is a knowledge of how much God loves them displayed through his grace. It's his grace that we want them to know about. So we have a core value that we've tried to say, well, what describes it to people who maybe are, are still looking around, still wondering, what does it mean? Because if we say grace, it's not necessarily understood. And the best thing we could came up with, and believe me, there were 8, 10, 12 people working on this, it is our core value number one is come as you are. Come as you are and understand we are not perfect and we do not expect you to be. Several years ago, uh, the kids in Romania were railing on us for a mistake we made. And believe me, we, we made several. Diane Pulvermiller stands up and she says in two languages, I think, we are sorry we're not perfect. And that's all they needed to hear. That's all they needed to hear. It wasn't our authority that we're in charge, therefore you fall into line. We, we are willing to admit we're not perfect. Now, I prove that daily. I don't know about you, but, but, but it's easy to prove that I'm not perfect. So as we surveyed people, and, and as they talked to us, they kept saying, well, you accepted us without knowing anything about us. Uh, as, and, and then we say, well, what's our first core value? Well, it should be one of God's core values. It should be grace and how to say it in a way that many more people would understand it. I want you to memorize this. Come as you are. Is that hard? You got to memorize? Say it. Oh my gosh, I'm in a crowd of Einsteins. Wonderful. Come as you are. And then this might be harder because we're saying you can come as you are, but now you're saying we're not perfect. And you might change that from the plural to the singular. I'm not perfect, and I don't expect you to be either. I'm not perfect. That is our first core value. Come as you are. We're not perfect. I'm not perfect. Each of us is a living, breathing, walking display of God's grace. And it is our desire to treat you that way. So what happens if someone comes in and they looks like they haven't showered or smell like they've showered in a few days? We display God's grace. What happens if they come in overdressed? <laughs> we display God's grace. What happens if they say, uh, you know, I've got a past. We say, <laughs> tell me about it. 
Now, I, I want you to know this. When we say, come as you are, God never lets you stay there. But that's where you start. And as I look at many of you, you can say, I'm a living, breathing, walking display of God's grace. And can you show anything better to anyone that you will come across that's inquiring about Jesus than the fact that God loves you and saved you by his grace? Let's pray. Lord, the most famous song, I think, probably has surpassed Happy Birthday now. The most famous song in English, and I know it's been translated into every, every possible language, is Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. We don't understand wretch, and we may not understand grace, but we understand the tone of that song. And as it's sung again and again and again, in this audience this morning, there are some who have not received, maybe not even understood, but have not received your grace. They are outside of your family still wondering, maybe resisting even. And I pray that this morning would take them that next step further. And for those of us who are recipients of your grace through Christ's death on the cross, is there anything better as an example of God's love than being gracious to whoever we come across, of showing God's love, God's acceptance, God's overlooking of faults? Is there anything better Before we get to a new facility, Lord, we need to be certain that this is our core value. That this is our core value. We know it's yours. We want it to be ours. You talk to the Father now. And if it's not... Would you tell them it is? You want it to be. You're going to make it that way. Through the power of God's spirit, you're dropping your knife and you're picking up his gun. You're going to be like Christ in displaying grace. A living, breathing, walking example of God's great love. Lord, hear our hearts. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.